on episode 12 of the Classic Sports Car, some financial advice for Aston Martin, plus E-type lightweights. What made them so special? Welcome to the Classic Sports Car, a tribute to the sporting classics of a bygone era. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition, another episode of the Classic Sports Car. This is Tom, who for the last 30 years has been turning keys, turning wrenches, and turning over rocks and pages to buy, repair, and learn all about classic sports cars. Our last episode was back in August, and in that episode, we highlighted what was to then be the upcoming Monterey Car Week and some of the auction predictions and anticipated events and cars that might be sold at the Monterey Car Week. And just for a sense of continuity, once again, for those of you who might be listening in the future, I want to just kind of circle back and wrap up some of the highlights from the Monterey Car Week, just to have a little consistency here. So if we look back at the August Monterey Car Week from the auction side, over 790 cars were sold at an average price of $590,700 for a weekend total of 469 million, according to Haggerty. The sales total smashed the previous record at Monterey set in 2015, which was 395 million. More than 110 cars sold for a million dollars or more during the weekend, which was also a new record. Now, there were signs of overly optimistic pricing. The top vehicle sold was a 1955 Ferrari 410 Sports Spider, and it was auctioned at RM Sotheby's, and it sold for $22 million, which was below the estimated value of between $25 and $30 million, and several cars failed to sell at their asking price. Now, leading up to the weekend, some of the experts had indicated that there was a fear of soaring car prices in the classic sports car market, and this was due for a correction and several big collectors dumped large portions of their collections at Monterey, suggesting the smart money saw a market that had peaked. Now, the sell-through rate, or shares of cars that was sold, was 79%, which was just shy of last year's 80% rate. Now, let's take a look at the top 10 cars that sold at auction during the Monterey week. And some of these were highlighted in the previous episode as ones to watch for potential top sales. Now, the 10th most expensive car that sold was a 1958 Ferrari 250 GT Cabriolet, which sold for $6.8 million. Number 9, a 1938 Tabo Lago T150C SS Teardrop Coupe, which sold for $7.265 million. Number 8 was a 1953 Ferrari 375 MM Spider, which sold for $7.485 million. Number seven, another Ferrari, a 1954 Ferrari 375 America. That sold for seven, almost $7.6 million. Number six, a 1966 Ferrari 275 GTB slash C Coupe. That sold for $7.595 million. Another Ferrari at number five, a 1957 500 TRC Spider, which sold for $7,815,000. Number four, 1924 Hispana Suiza H6C Transformable Torpedo, which sold for $9.245 million. Number three, a 1937 Mercedes-Benz 540K, 
Roadster, which sold for $9.9 million. Number two was a 1937 Bugatti Type 57 Coupe. That sold for $10.345 million. And as I mentioned earlier, the number one car was a 1955 Ferrari 410 Sports Spider, which sold for $22,005,000. Another auction item I talked about in the previous episode was the Gene Ponder collection and a number of MGs that he had that was going to go on sale or up for auction, I should say, at his Texas estate. And that did take place on the 22nd through the 24th of September. And here's a follow-up article from the rmsotherbees.com website. The headline is, Expansive Texas-based collection boasts 100% sell-through rate for 1,163 lots of automobiles and automobilia. Nestled not far from the Louisiana border, the town of Marshall is a jewel in the rolling hills of East Texas. With a population totaling just over 22,000 people, it's not an exaggeration to say that the recent R.M. Sotheby's auction of the Gene Ponder collection attracted a good portion of the surrounding area. Visitors who took the time to preview the auction location witnessed an expansive estate nestled among pine trees with more than a dozen buildings, each containing enough automobiles and automobilia to cover nearly every square inch of real estate. Now let me jump down into this article and get some of the details. It says a total of 977 registered bidders from 31 countries and 46 states participated. Representing nearly every automobile brand in history, the selection of motoring memorabilia amassed by Mr. Ponder brought in an impressive $3,344,792, a testament to the quality of his collection. And that's just the memorabilia. Let's jump down a little bit further in this article where they talk about the automobiles. This is a faithful companion of Mr. Ponder on prestigious road rallies until 2019. His 1960 Mercedes-Benz 300 SL Roadster earned a respectable sum of $1,595,000 U.S. dollars. The second of two cars valued at $1 million or more was the 1938 Bugatti Type 57 SC Atlantic Recreation by Eric Co or Cox K O U X, which hammered down at one million one hundred fifty-five thousand, benefiting its fine quality. The rest of the list of the top ten cars included several authentic models, including a 1960 Maserati thirty-five hundred GT Spider by Vignali, which brought seven hundred seventy thousand, and a 1954 Aston Martin DB2/4 drophead coupe by Graber. The feature car at this year's Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance, and it sold for $687,500. And then to wrap up here, it indicates that starting with an interest in pre- and post-war MG models, a total of 34 examples were sold in this auction. Mr. Ponder has demonstrated an uncanny ability to curate a collection and an endless capacity as a gentleman. So the Texan Gene Ponder also had a very successful auction at his, sounds like an estate in Texas this past September. Now, a few episodes back, I talked about some of the classic restoration that was offered at some of the current manufacturer's uh, facilities that were making automobiles back in the 50s and 60s. And one of them was the FCA Heritage, the FCA being Fiat Chrysler Automotive, I believe the A is Automotive, which is now Stellantis. And if you go to their website, fcaheritage.com, 
It says, Heritage is a department of Stellantis dedicated to Alfa Romeo, Fiat Lancia, and Abarth classic cars. Now, I guess Alfa Romeo had not been up and running or it was not an option quite yet when we discussed that just a few months ago on a different episode. Because in October, in MotorAuthority.com's website, there was an article stating Alfa Romeo launches a classic car restoration program. I guess it had been planned to be part of the heritage, but wasn't up and running just yet when we discussed it earlier in the year. Let me read some of this short article from Motor Authority. Alfa Romeo has an illustrious past dotted with numerous much-loved classics. From the Humble Spider, which had a starring role in The Graduate and was built from 1966 to 1994, to Concours winners like the 8C2900B of the 1930s, Early Alfa Romeos cover a wide spectrum of the classic car world. To help ensure all those classics remain on the road, Alfa Romeo has launched an in-house heritage department offering certification services as well as repairs and full restorations. Called Alfa Romeo Classiche, it's the latest addition to the wider Stellanus Heritage Department and will be formally launched during the 2022 auto event. It's a long Italian word here. Auto e moto di poca. Let's just say a 2022 automotive event being held in Padua, Italy. Actually, it was held in Padua, Italy on October 20th through the 23rd. One service offered is a certificate of authenticity where an expert pours over the car, verifying the authenticity of the car and its components. This can be done in Turin, Italy, or at the owner's home if requested. A simpler service is the awarding of a certificate of origin, similar to the Porsche production specification service announced on Tuesday by Porsche. This service certifies the car's year of production and original factory specification. It includes details such as model specification, engine serial number, and original exterior and interior details, all of which will be a boom for anyone looking to restore an Alfa Romeo to original condition. Beyond this are repair and restoration services. Also handled in Turin, these services can include the repair of an individual part or aesthetic component or something as complicated as a complete teardown restoration. Alfa Romeo will soon add a new section to its official website where owners of classic models will be able to connect with Alfa Romeo Classiche. So if you've got an Alfa Romeo in need of restoration and are in Italy or want a good excuse to head over there, now you've got the opportunity with the Alfa Romeo Classiche. And a little more current news from that episode where we talked about some of the factory restoration available plus the continuation vehicles. Jaguar is making some more C-type continuation vehicles. This is an article from carsuk.net from October 14th, 2022. It says Jaguar C-type edition 70, a pair of extra special C-type continuation models. Jaguar Land Rover may be struggling as Jaguar hibernates ahead of the EV explosion to come and COVID and chip stymied car production, meaning an ever-growing order book for Land Rover in particular, which is all very well but doesn't pay the bills. But one bit of Jaguar Land Rover doing well is Jaguar Classic and especially its run of continuation cars like the lightweight E-types, XKSSs and D-types, and more recently the Jaguar C-type continuation. Built between 1951 and 1953, the C-Type won Le Mans on its debut in 1951, 
pioneered disc brakes in 1952 and in 1953 dominated Le Mans with a first, second, fourth, and ninth place finish, thanks in no part to its 220 horsepowers from Jaguar's 3.4 liter straight six with triple webs and those new and innovative disc brakes. Initially, Jaguar planned to build just eight C-type continuation models, but it now looks like it's more as they reveal the Jaguar C-Type Edition 70, a run of just two cars, which must count as the smallest special edition run we've seen. In all the ways that matter, the pair of Edition 70 models are the same as the rest of the continuation models, but there are cosmetic iterations to each to celebrate 1953's Le Mans success. One car is finished in Verbier Silver with cranberry red leather interior to mark the diamond anniversary, and the second car is finished in British Racing Green with suede green leather to honor the 1953 Le Mans winning C-Type. Both come with 70 edition stitching and embroidery and painted 70s on roundels and unique badges. Then it quotes Jaguar Land Rover classic Matthew Bailey as saying, Each C-Type continuation is a rare and special vehicle to grace any collection. We are delighted to reveal these two exquisite editions to commemorate a landmark year for Jaguar and motorsport. So if you weren't able to pick up a car at auction at either Monterey or Gene Ponder's estate, and you don't have an Alfa Romeo to take to Italy to get restored, maybe you can go and buy another C-Type continuation. Hurry, because there's only two that's going to be available. Now, in the last episode, I highlighted the Aston Martin DB4, DB4 GT, DB4 GT Zagato. And right after I recorded and uploaded that, there was a couple of articles that came out highlighting a brand new limited edition Aston Martin that was going to be revealed at Monterey Car Week. And it's called the DBR22. I'm going to read a little bit about this. This is from the Aston Martin website. This is introducing the DBR22, celebrating a decade of exclusivity and a lifetime of thrilling open cockpit sports cars. Aston Martin has chosen the 2022 Monterey Car Week to unveil the spectacular DBR22 for the first time, a V12 engine, two-seat, coach-built design concept, celebrating the marquee's extraordinary bloodline of open cockpit sport racers. The creation of the DBR22 design concept, unveiled in California, is the latest in a long line of extraordinary projects expertly handled by in-house bespoke division Q by Aston Martin, which this year celebrates a decade of building exclusive cars for the world's most discerning customers. Iconic one-off commissions such as Aston Martin's Victor and low-volume specials such as Vulcan, limited to just 24 examples worldwide, and Vantage V600, limited to just 14, are truly magnificent examples of these collaborations. It seems only fitting then that the DBR22 design concept should also form the basis of a production reality example for an ultra-exclusive number of Q by Aston Martin customers. Now, I won't go into all the details, but just some of the key highlights. Once again, this is an extremely limited edition vehicle that is celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Q by Aston Martin division. It's a unique coach-built design which evokes the iconic Aston Martin racers such as the DBR1 and the DBR3S. The DBR1 being the only Aston Martin to win the Le Mans 24-hour race outright, which it did in 1959. As an all-new carbon fiber bodywork clothed with a very potent V12 twin-turbo powertrain, 
a showcase for new production techniques such as a 3D printed rear subframe, top speed of 198 miles per hour, 0 to 60 in 3.4 seconds, and so on. And I looked up a number of different articles about this and no one was able to identify a price. One website indicated that pricing details for this super exclusive DBR22 will be announced by Aston Martin when it reaches final production, which is a little ways off still. And some of the other websites that I had looked up had also predicted it's going to be somewhere in the range of about $2 million. And most are predicting that they're only going to make 10 of these to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the Q division. Now, this is where I want to give a little bit of financial advice to Aston Martin. Now, this is not coming across as a knock or a critique because I'm a big fan of Aston Martin. I think they make and have made some of the most beautiful and spectacular cars ever. And I would be tickled to death to own any Aston Martin. So let's just consider this a comment of concern from a lifetime fan. Now, Aston Martin was founded back in 1913, so they've been around for over 100 years. And in that 100-year period, they have gone bankrupt seven times. Now, I'm not a financial advisor, and I don't have a degree in business, but I know some of the fundamentals of business practice. And I think most people understand bankruptcy. When a company files bankruptcy, it's usually because they can't pay their bills. And if you're a business or a company, the reason typically why you can't pay your bills is you don't have enough revenue. And once again, if you're a business, typically you don't have enough revenue because whatever it is you manufacture or make as a business, you haven't sold enough of them. So if you are an automobile manufacturer and you declare bankruptcy, most of us would consider it because you haven't sold enough automobiles. So you don't sell enough cars, you're going to declare bankruptcy. Now in this article from Aston Martin, from their webpage, and they talked about the Q division, and they talked about the limited edition vehicles that they make. 14 of the Vantage V600, 24 of the Vulcan, and now with this new DBR22 and speculation of being just 10 cars. Now if I've been bankrupt seven times, in a 100-plus year time period, I might want to change my philosophy to the limited edition vehicles. Now, I know Aston Martin is a bespoke manufacturer, and they do not make that many vehicles. I think I read somewhere that Honda, it was either Honda or Toyota, make more cars in a single day than Aston Martin has made in their 100-year lifespan. So I get it. But to limit a vehicle that's going to cost somewhere in, in the neighborhood of $2 million to just 10 when you've got this history of bankruptcy, I don't know, it just seems a little off-putting. Why not, how about 100 How about celebrating the 1959 Le Mans victory? Maybe 59 because they won Le Mans in 1959, and this DBR-22 is kind of a tribute to the DBR-1 that won in 1959. So just some advice, some consideration just from a guy in a podcast who's a fan of Aston Martin and doesn't want to see them go bankrupt an eighth or ninth time and would love to see him around for an additional 100 years. For the second half of the show, I'd like to take a look at the Jaguar Lightweight E-Types. 
Now, a few episodes back, I did an episode highlighting some of the continuation vehicles that Jaguar and Aston Martin, a few of the other manufacturers, have released in the past 10 years or so. And then I did some follow-up episodes looking at the original vehicles and what warranted a recreation or a re-release of those vehicles. I want to wrap up that series looking at the lightweight E-types. If you remember back in 2015, Jaguar released the missing six as continuation vehicles. So let's take a look back at 1963 or so and see what made those lightweights such special cars to warrant brand new continuation vehicles just a few years ago. As we covered in a couple episodes prior to this one with the Jaguar D-Type, with the end of the D-Type and the fire at the factory in 1957, Jaguar had somewhat stepped down from international racing, at least from a direct factory involvement standpoint. Although they continued to give support for private teams, and they still offered performance parts and service for teams racing Jaguars. At this point in the late 50s and early 1960s, much of Jaguar's focus was on their sedan vehicles, or as they like to call them, their saloons, and the development and launch of a new sports car. And that happened in 1961, when the E-Type exploded onto the scene with incredible success. The E-Type was available as both a two-seat GT Coupe and a two-seat Roadster. It had a 3.8-liter inline six-engine triple SU carburetors and produced 265 horsepower. It had a four-speed gearbox, fully independent suspension, and four-wheel disc brakes. All of these features developed and then passed down from the Jaguar C and D-Types. As expected, many of the E-Types headed to the racetrack and Jaguar supported a number of the private teams. Now, the E-Type in its standard configuration had some success in racing, but many of the top-name racers felt that it was kind of too soft of a car, more of a GT than a sports car, to be truly competitive at the top level of international racing. Now, that might have been okay or even good enough had a certain Italian car manufacturer not introduced their new vehicle. Now, I'm talking about the Ferrari 250 GTO. Yes, this is the same GTO that... Seemingly year after year breaks new sales record for the most expensive car ever sold at auction. And as most race fans are familiar with, during this time era, in most classes of racing, companies built a car for sale to the general public and then modified it for racing. But Ferrari did just the opposite. They created a pure race car, then did whatever was necessary to make it available for public sale to meet the various requirements for the different racing classes. At this point, with the road-going E-Type selling so well, there wasn't a lot of motivation from Jaguar management for a big push back into competitive motorsports. So to try and combat this new threat, Jaguar's competition division worked with some of their private race customers and attempted to make modifications to their standard E-Types. Some of these modifications included lighter gauge steel monocoques, a wide-angle cylinder head, they tried to adjust toe angles, camber and tire pressure, using different brake servos to try and address what many felt was a major weakness in their brakes. But in 1962, even the great racer Graham Hill could only achieve three second-place finishes and all behind the new Ferrari. One story goes that even one of the private Jaguar teams broke down and bought a GTO, which was rumored to show up one day at the Jaguar factory in Coventry for the engineers to test and analyze. The Jaguar factory then gave the green light for the creation of a limited number of lightweight E-types. Much of their design borrowed from the one-off prototype designer Malcolm Sayer had created the year before called the Low Drag Coupe. 
Originally, 18 lightweights were planned, but at the end, only 12 left the factory. So what made these lightweights different and unique and much more competitive? Well, they were much lighter in weight, hence their name. They had an all-aluminum monocoque body. They used an all-alloy 3.8-liter XK engine with a wide-angle D-type head and dry sump lubrication. They had Lucas fuel injection. Earlier versions retained a Moss 4-speed gearbox, but later ones adopted the 5-speed ZF gearbox. They had disc brakes from the Mark 9 saloon. This was a Roadster body with an aluminum hardtop. Also had a wider rear track, modified front suspension with anti-dive characteristics, a lowered steering rack, racing seats, and alloy wheels. All glass other than the windshield was replaced with plexiglass. And all these changes brought the weight down almost 600 pounds. Now, the early lightweights used an aluminum 3.8 liter XK engine, but they found out that they couldn't really handle the rigors of racing, especially in endurance racing. So it was replaced with a cast iron block. And in the end, they were making close to 340 horsepower. Now, all these modifications meant that once again, Jaguar had a very competitive car at the highest level of motorsport racing. At the 1963 Le Mans, the private team of Briggs Cunningham entered three lightweights with official factory support. Two of the cars retired early, but the third finished ninth overall and second in class. Of course, ninth overall behind the winning Ferrari and the second place Ferrari and the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth place Ferrari. Now this was right in the midst of Ferrari's dominance of Le Mans with their six straight victories. Now the lightweight saw its best results in non-endurance races with four victories in 1963 by Graham Hill and a number of top three finishes by other racers. And there was little doubt that the lightweight was a match for the Ferrari GTO, but unfortunately for Jaguar, there was another sports car about to pop onto the scene and start stealing all the checkered flags, that being the Shelby Cobra. By the end of 1963, Jaguar decided to abandon the lightweight project, having only created 12 complete cars, hence the designation of the missing six for the continuation vehicles of 2015, since 18 were originally planned. So that wraps up another edition of the Classic Sports Car. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got a question or a request, maybe a correction of something I've stated, please feel free to send me an email at tom at theclassicsportscar.com. Until our next episode, enjoy your classic sports cars. Thanks for listening to the show. For additional features, please visit the website, theclassicsportscar.com. Please join us again for another episode. Until then, I hope to see you out on the road in your own classic sports car.